welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Victor Purton. Victor is the offspring of stateless refugees from the Baltics. His early working years were spent in the law, politics, and public policy, culminating in 18 years in the Australian legislature. After politics, Victor worked as commissioner to the Americas, helping to promote foreign direct investment. He later was served as senior advisor to the Australian G20 presidency. Upon his return to Melbourne, Victor was surprised by the negativity he encountered around leadership and the increasing levels of anxiety and depression in his community. This led him to found the Australian Leadership Project and later the Center for Optimism. Today, he serves as the Chief Optimism Officer of the Center for Optimism. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Well, Thanks, David. Welcome back, Victor. Um, we talked to Victor last week about um, his Center for Optimism. He is the Chief Optimism Officer at the Center for Optimism. He founded it. And uh, he spent 18 years um, in law, politics, and public policy. And he um, eventually, as an officer of some of those efforts, realized that the need for optimism was a great need. So what I'm impressed with, I want to ask you a little bit, Victor, is, I mean, actually starting a center like you started, the Center for Optimism, is a very optimistic project. So I'm very curious. I know you talked a little bit about some of the obvious need that you saw but to put that need into this kind of, kind of action is quite admirable. I'm just curious how you decided to do this. So it occurred um, as a result of the Global Integrity Summit. And um, I gave a speech at the end of a very sad conference and I entitled it The Case for Optimism. And it electrified the room. You know, here were possibilities, here was hope. And Helen Clark, who was head, then the head of the United Nations Development Programme and ex-Prime Minister of New Zealand said, turn that into a book, Victor, and I will endorse it. And then a few other funny things happened along the way. I was giving speeches in Madrid and Phoenix and elsewhere. Um, and someone set me a challenge and, I, and they said, um, that Australians use very fruity language, David. So it was, what the something or other can the government do that Victor Purton himself can't do? And that was the birth of the centre. Um, so we've had a lot of fun, David. My mum died at the age of 92 last year. And, you know, mums are always, you know, great supporters of everything we do. But the week before she died, she said to me, Victor, you've done so many interesting things in your life, but I've never seen you do anything more important or fulfilling than asking people to think about what makes them optimistic. So, but even still, you took an idea and actually put it into action, a pretty big step. It's a fairly robust organization at this point. I mean, is this a privately funded nonprofit? Is it government funded? Is it both? I mean, what's the general generator of the effort of the Center of Public Opt Center of Optimism? Uh, yeah, so, so almost all, uh, we're all volunteers. So okay. um, the revenue, because we started just before COVID lockdown. Okay. Um, it's been establishing itself. So mainly it's been, you know, financially, I've really supported it. Okay. Uh, but we're gradually getting more supporters and we've gone to a membership model. So people are paying membership dues and we've got 6,000 members and subscribers in 82 countries. 
Wow. So we've done hours of optimism for Afghanistan and hours of optimism for the Congo. And, um, you know, we, we, we are dealing with some of the tough stuff. Wow. And so it's um, 6,000 people. And um, we're hoping now as we come out of COVID to, to grow even more. So what year did you found the center? Uh, 2019. So okay. wow. literally okay. six months before Melbourne went into a 253-day lockdown. So I don't remember exactly when I talked to you before. Had you founded the center when I talked to you before? Do you remember? Just check that, that date. Um, seem like I don't remember this for sure. So it was. It was no. We actually spoke just before the COVID pandemic. So I'd actually set up the center, but it was it was really baby steps at that time. So I'm bringing a couple. Just finish up a couple of neuroscience points before we jump into the impact that you are making and what you think you can make. So there's a mentor of mine from Seattle who's been very successful, and he had a mentor who's also quite successful. And one of the points was that we are programmed throughout our entire lives with negative voices from our parents and teachers and marketing and society that you're not good enough, you're not good enough, do this, do this, accomplish this, accomplish this. So there's always sort of a self-critical voice that drives a lot of us to be, quote, successful. But what it does do, you're successful based on your adrenaline threat response drive. So it gives you energy, but it's sort of a negative energy. It's a draining threat energy. Whereas you look into safety, love, optimism, altruism, why those are actually safety physiology. So this optimism is not a psychological construct. It's a state of being that's actually physiologically safe. And so what happens as far as chronic disease in general is sustained exposure to fight or flight chemistry. And you wanna minimize that and optimize safety physiology. So optimism is a physiological state which is really clear. And so it's not just some type of psychological process, it's a physiological process. It's very, very, very powerful. We mentioned last time, and so we know that for instance, there's a paper out, a couple of papers I just read this week on altruism, giving back. And altruism lowers inflammatory markers, improves metabolism. It's amazing. Just, all, just the act of giving something back actually lowers markers. Of course, there's a sense of community with that, et cetera, which is also anti-inflammatory. So the essence of chronic disease is sustained inflammation and metabolism, elevated metabolism. And as you engage in optimism, you're having a direct effect on your body's physiology and you feel better. Not because it's some psychological construct, but your body chemistry is very, very optimized and you feel, and you feel good. Yeah, and, and Harvard University, Boston, Stanford, um, the American Heart Association has a fantastic scientific statement on the impact of positive emotions on heart health and also on treatment for heart disease. So you're spot on. The science is there, David, to say optimism is the most, uh, in fact, it's the trait most indicative of healthy longevity. So uh, the major studies have looked at living to 85 in good physical and mental health. And, and, you know, the researchers thought it was going to be genetics or geography, wealth or income. The most significant trait in determining healthy longevity um, is optimism. And there's some recent Israeli research that shows at the age of 85, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist has a huge impact on, on your lifespan and your healthy lifespan and, and your life lived with purpose. 
Well, there's also a very famous long-term, we might be talking about the same Harvard study that they, they took a cohort of students that are 18 years old at Harvard and they measure simply their happiness. Do, do, you might, I don't know if I'm quoting so this. That's study, a different but, study, but yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, and so, and you can probably quote it better than I can, but it was impressive that they followed these people off for, for like 30 or 40 years. And the people that were rated themselves as happy back then lived about eight years longer that about half the chronic diseases other people have. So I'll just ask a rhetorical question because I get a little frustrated with this, less than optimistic about our medical profession. We look at optimism as some type of psychological construct, but we know chronic stress actually kills people. It kills them. So you want, do you want to call death a psychological issue? I don't think so. Do you want to call cardiac disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, a psychological process? Your body's physiology causes dramatic changes in your body that result in structural changes. These things don't just happen. So you're absolutely correct that optimism creates the opposite body neurochemistry that's incredibly regenerative and healing. And it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And when I talked to you before, I really had little appreciation about how powerful it was. Um, are you familiar with Dr. Stephen Portis's work by chance, the polyvagal theory? Have you? Uh, I haven't, haven't read that at length, no. So what he's taught us, we actually meet twice a month, a, a big work group, and I'd love to have you join us, by the way, where we meet twice a month on Wednesdays, and uh, we spend one hour talking to the top neuroscientists in the world. And Stephen Portis has taught us through the autonomic nervous system that we learn to co-regulate. As we co-regulate in a very positive, interactive, social way, it actually stimulates the vagus nerve, which is powerfully anti-inflammatory. So this co-regulation project is a big deal, again, physiological process. So getting back to what you're doing, again, I'm sorry about my little lectures here. I can't resist, but I'm excited. I'm so, I, the reason I'm so excited about what you're doing is I get the physiology much clearer now than I did two years ago. So my question is, okay, um, we know that you can't change the world, but you can change one person at a time and change a lot of the world. So I'm really curious that you started the center in 2019, but obviously you've been doing some work before that. So I'm curious as far as your personal, some stories, some observations, what kind of impact you think you can make or will make um, on this whole process? I mean, what's your vision? So our vision is to reach as many people as we can, to give them the tools, both to be more optimistic themselves, but to be infectiously optimistic. Okay. And so, you know, at, at the moment we, we're starting to, we're, we're doing stuff online. So the last couple of days, David, we've actually run online my best self, you know, the exercise where you um, meditate for five minutes on what you look like, what you'll be doing, what work you'll be doing in five years time, and then you'll be journaling. And we had dozens of people um, spread from the US to Africa. And what we've discovered is people love sharing those visions. It's that community you were talking about. Um, but this is very powerful because this is people sharing their visions of themselves in five years time and it sets off all sorts of triggers on what exercise I should do, what work I want to do. And, and the science is in at, at Vienna Medical School, for instance, um, this is one of the most powerful processes. Um, the other, I, I run workshops, um, we've done them in prison, we've done them in schools, uh, we've done them in big corporations. And last week I was in Bendigo, which is Australia's biggest inland city. You know, Australians hug the coast. I know there's lots of sharks, but 
we like living on the coast. Uh, but this inland city, the Chamber of Commerce, gave me two hours with 60 business owners. And what I always do, David, is I go around the room and ask everyone what makes them optimistic. Now, what was interesting in that group was not one person mentioned their business, not one person mentioned their sales. It was everything from religion to looking through the eyes of their grandchildren. Um, and there were three remarkable shared stories. So one woman got up and she said, my husband died last year of cancer, but he was so optimistic throughout his treatment and even on his deathbed, he has left my children and me with a sense of optimism that we can get things done. Now, a couple later, um, a very handsome looking man um, got up and said, well, my wife died five years ago of cancer. And she was very similar, optimistic throughout the treatment, optimistic into death. I am a better man. I'm fitter. I'm healthier. I'm in a different business. I've got a new relationship but I owe it all to my wife's optimism in what could have been the midst of great grief. And then 10 later, this woman said, look, I'm gonna change what I was gonna say. On my mantelpiece is a picture of an 18 year old girl and she died at the age of 18. She was my high school friend and she suffered leukemia for five years, but was so optimistic and so upbeat, she still inspires me today and I'm now 50. 32 years later. Now, the same thing happened in prison. You know, one of the prisoners, a, a drug lord, um, now doing a long sentence, shared his cancer treatment um, with his other prisoners. And his surgeon had said to him, look, I can do surgery, we can do chemo, we can do radio, but the only thing that's going to get you through this cancer is optimism. Really? I'm not quite sure how he ended up in prison after getting through that. <laughs> but the other prisoners were almost moved to tears by that. Wow. No, I, well, there's a thing also, optimism is contagious. I mean, we know there's a process called mirror neurons and, and there's a real debate to the actual nature of these things. But we know when somebody yawns, other people yawn. When people laugh, other people laugh. And but it's also in the 1940s, they were doing um, tests on primates and one of the researchers was walking down the center aisle eating some peanuts. And all of a sudden the EEG monitor started clicking away, clicking away. And they noticed that what was clicking away was the appetite center. And so what they found out is that it's not, again, not psychological, but if you're optimistic in a good mood, that you're actually going to stimulate that part of the other person's brain. That's where the last five years of my practice, we really started into families with lots of family rules. One of the rules is if you're frustrated and angry after day of work, don't walk in the front door. Don't do it. No, but change the way you do it. I um, I um, I was MC for a cybersecurity conference, David. And, you know, cybersecurity is sold through fear. Right. What they didn't work out was that they hired an MC who asks everyone what makes them optimistic, and um, none of them had ever been asked what makes them optimistic before. Um, so it became a much more upbeat cyber conference. And one of the guys was the chairman of one of the biggest cyber companies in Australia. And he walked away inspired um, and realized he hadn't been smiling at his kids. Now, his secretary told me he gave a $200 tip to the waitress that night. But he also went home and started smiling at his kids all the time, who were teenagers. 
until after three days, they said to him, Dad, get rid of that bloody Victor Purton smile. <laughs> but he's so, you know, that, that, that smiling, saying hello to everyone, asking people what's been the best thing in your day rather than some sort of nondescript answer forces other people to think. And in doing that, you lift them. And of course, they'll always turn around saying, what's the best thing in your day, David? And, and of course, you're going to have to have an answer. And you're smiling now. You know, we're, we're on video. The listeners can't see it. But, but to see David's sparkling smile um, just lifts me, just watching it. It goes against my belief system, though, that surgeons don't smile. Uh, when I, I talking to the surgeons, I said to the Australian surgeons, what they've got to learn is to accept thanks. True. So typically, you know, my mum was, you know, in treatment for cancer and, you know, I'm thanking the doctor, I'm thanking the surgeon, I'm thanking the nurses. Now, the nurses accept things, but the doctors, it was always, oh, no, it's nothing, or, oh, it's just my job, or, oh, oh it's the team. And I, I said to these guys, just take a minute, look into the eyes of the person who is thanking you and smile and say thank you accept the things but it's very interesting that doctors have got themselves into this mode where, where gratitude is something they're embarrassed by wow that's it i hadn't really thought about that but i think you're you're dead on with that one that's really really interesting so um i'd like to finish up this last bit with a couple of questions about you personally about some of the effects that i, I don't i'm doubting you were raised optimistic and there must have been some transition point where this became real. I know you went through the work for the government, et cetera. So I guess the question I'm really asking is, how has this outlook changed your life personally? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I'm, I'm the son of stateless refugees. Of what? And uh, refugees. Okay. Both mother and father refugees. My grandfather was tortured to death by the Russians. My grandmother in the Gulag for 12 years. So, so we come through generations of suffering under authoritarian government, wow. but persisting. So I think in Australia, there's some really good studies that show that refugee kids are the most optimistic kids in a country. Wow. And, and migrant kids, number two, and then native-born kids, number three. So I think when I think about my own optimism... I suspect, you know, my mum, you know, refugee, nearly killed by the Soviets, nearly killed by the Americans, widowed when I was seven, working three jobs to look after we kids, a refugee in a strange land. She must have had this huge impact on my own optimism and persistence. Huh. So I think oh. it's, it's culture. It's, so for me, it's, there must be some genetics. And there must be like, so what's changed me in doing this work um, is, is the joyfulness. You know, it, it's, it's every time I ask someone what makes them optimistic um, or I do that greeting on the street of smiling and saying hello to strangers. Um, when I do workshops with kids or prisoners or the like, I come out feeling absolutely fantastic. And I, I remember Bill Clinton, I, I had the honour to meet him once, and he said to me how energised he feels every time he looks into someone's eyes and has a conversation, I think that's where I draw my energy from too. And so, yeah, so that's me. So it, it's, I, I, I have been changed, but I think what it has allowed me to do is to unlock and, and really determine that, that my optimism comes from at least four generations of suffering 
persistence and doing your best. Now I'm impressed, I mean, but even still with that amount of trauma, it's pretty easy to get stuck in the dark side, right? Yeah, well, my grandmother, my grandmother was, you know, her health was broken by the gulag. You know, hundreds of thousands of people died in the camp collection where right. she was. And when she got right. back home, no one wanted to know her because she was a political prisoner. In 1987, she rang me and she said, would you come over? I want to go to the first freedom rally. So, you know, she had lived through most of the, the last century. So on her walking frame, we went to the freedom rally and she said, I'm going to outlive communism. Wow. And she then took part in the million hands across the three Baltic countries. And of course, right. four years later, the Soviet Union, the Communist Party dissolved like the Wicked Witch of the West. Now, she was not a happy woman, right? Yeah, you know, she had right. chronic pain, David, right. you know, from living and, and laboring in the gulag. Right. But she had this optimism and a belief that things would be better. Now, I know you had a chance to meet the Dalai Lama, and I, I think his book, um, The Way to Happiness, is really remarkably clear. Um, but a couple of things, I was at a conference he was in, in Louisville, Kentucky years ago. Of course, I didn't meet him. But the thing that was so inspiring about the Dalai Lama, in spite of really extreme circumstances, was his laugh. And Archbishop Tutu. Archbishop Tutu, you know, the South African um, anti-apartheid um, right. campaigner. He said, God commands us to laugh. So if you're feeling really brave, David, we could do 30 seconds of laughter yoga to finish off this broadcast. Because <laughs> that's what I do. We, um, in all of my sessions, David, doesn't matter how serious the business audience is, we either end up with 30 seconds of laughter yoga or we get people singing. Okay. Well, so so laughter, is... laughter is huge. <laughs> and and the, other, the other thing the Dalai Lama says, David? What's that? Choose optimism. It feels better. Well, you know, something interesting as I work with this mentor of mine right now is that he challenged a group of us. There's about six of us in the leadership, little mini deal, informal deal. And so he's incredibly successful. And he said, with these massive projects he has done successfully, the one thing he always does, does the question he asks himself, does this bring me joy? And we're looking at this guy and going, what? I mean, he's so he's a multi-billionaire, right? And so then he challenged us to bring joy into our lives. And I realized that I, I help people and I am organized and I learn how to process anxiety and anger. But I also realized that he really screwed me up because bringing joy into my life is not my first developed skill. It's not a great skill for me. So it's actually throwing me off balance quite a bit. I'm going, wait a second. So every day I ask my question probably five or 10 times a day, is it going to bring me joy? And being in an obsessive work pattern is a comfort zone, but that's not joy. That's a different energy. David, can I give you a coincidence? Sure. So back in the late 90s, I met a Hindu leader called Daddy Janki. Okay. And uh, Daddy Janki said, you're a busy sort of guy, aren't you? And I said, oh, I suppose so. She said, well, have a think about when you get an invitation Think about it in this way. Will the invitation bring you great joy? Wow. If it will, accept the invitation. Is it something that will advance you or your organization? If you can manage it, accept the invitation. Is it something you must do, which answers itself? She said, but everything else is a waste of time. Wow. So what you're doing, you're clearing space in your brain to actually 
bring in joy. Yeah. And, I just... and you make that the highest priority for activity. Wow. Okay, this is way, way out of my comfort zone because I'm really serious about this concept that surgeons don't smile. So let's try the laughing yoga. I'm not optimistic, by the way. <laughs> we will do it. All right. We'll so now you're okay. going to, we're going to, all your listeners. But Tom, to Tom, you have to, Tom, you're part of this. You're in the, you're in the game with me here. Tom, Tom, unmute. Um, so we're going to breathe in three times. The first two times, just in and out. And the third, after the third, um, particularly if there's someone else in the room, look at them. And we're going to laugh hysterically for 30 seconds. So let's breathe in once. Breathe in. Breathe in. <laughs> I've run out of breath. You guys oh still going? God. I hope my son is not going to listen to this. He's going to give me a lot of grief. So, oh, my son, my poor son who's heard me do this 30 or 40 times. It's, um, but yeah, look, um, anyone who's listening, you've got a board meeting, you've got a rotary meeting or the like, try this as an experiment and ask the other side, has anyone ever done laughter yoga? And there'll always be one shy hand will go up. So get them to stand with you um, and lead 30 seconds of laughter yoga to finish off any serious meeting or less serious meeting. Wow. Well, Victor, thank you again very much. Um, just a quick thing. I still want to make sure people know how to access your services. I would, for a lot of reasons, I do think that these grassroots efforts is person to person, letting things grow is the only way this world's going to change. And so I highly applaud his efforts with this group. And so, Victor, how do we access your resources? So the easiest way is just to Google Center for Optimism, all the materials available online for free. Um, there's um, the Habits of an Optimist, which is a 50 minute program, um, which um, people just love. Uh, we've got a My Best Self program, which is also on the air, but Center for Optimism, you'll find everything. Um, and there's a free membership there. Um, so if you say, look, I was listening to you on David, send me an email and say, I want the full free membership so I can start to be more infectiously optimistic in my community. I think the key word you just said is that it's one thing to be sort of happy, whatever it is, but actually proactively being infectiously optimistic is a pretty big shift. That's a big deal. Yeah, but as I said to you on our first occasion, you know, the head of the biggest mining company in the world said to me that all the great leaders he'd ever met were infectiously optimistic. Wow. But we don't do it by big speeches. We do it by little things. We, we lead by example. We smile and say hello to everyone. We, we, we change our greeting to ask people about the best thing in their day. We listen to the news less. And, and a vital thing is what you do, David, is we share stories of optimism and hope rather than share misery. Right. No, I agree. Worker again, thank you very, very much. David, you're, you're a wonder. I just love the work you do. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Victor Purton, for being on the show today and for taking us on an enlightening excursion into the healing power of optimism. 
I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.